This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. My name is Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about conspiratorial thinking. So if you're having deja vu, it's because we already did an episode about conspiratorial thinking. It was actually the second episode that I had ever done on the podcast. So now that it's been a little while, we've you know, hit their groove of the show. I wanted to revisit some topics that I had done in the beginning. And I kind of already did this with the Amanda Bynes episode. I did an update on Britney Spears and kind of revisited some of the the themes from that episode. Um, but in this one, uh, I realized that the first episode, although lengthy, <laughs> uh, didn't cover everything, right? Like this is a pretty big topic. So I think some of these episodes are going to be more of a a revisited issue. So definitely for this one and a few other episodes. I also have to say that this is one of the most uh, most listened to episode. So I think uh, or the original conspiratorial thinking one was. So it makes sense for me to kind of go back and add some information, maybe revisit this topic that that seems to be pretty popular um, and is landing home. Uh, And I wanted to focus on a conspiracy theory in particular for this episode that is is quite old, uh, but has relevant consequences for today and is a a story that I think is kind of going under the radar in the news. So I wanted to highlight it, you know, of course, talk about some research, talk about the implications of these types of conspiracy theories, uh, and just really, you know, do what we do here on the pod, Uh, all in the context of like kind of revisiting the themes we've talked about in previous episodes. The example that I am referring to has to do with a conspiracy theory about the Sandy Hook school shooting that took place in 2012 and the information entertainment specialist Alex Jones. (laughs) I don't know what a a proper term term for him is because he is not a journalist. I guess he is an entertainer, but he also just is really getting in there with misinformation. But it took me about a year with Sandy Hook to come to grips with the fact that the whole thing was fake. Um, And recently, there have been some news coming out about the consequences of Alex Jones and his statements that he's made about this particular conspiracy theory. So I thought it would be a good case to use to kind of highlight some of the things I'm going to be talking about in this episode. So if you're not familiar, with the Sandy Hook massacre. This was a mass shooting that took place in 2012, so about 10 years ago. Uh, It took place in a town called Sandy Hook in Connecticut, and it essentially led to the murder of 20 first graders, six teachers, the mother of the shooter, and the shooter himself. He he attempted or died by suicide. 
Uh, and I'm not going to be using the killer's name or the shooter's name. Um, I don't think it's really necessary for the context of this um, episode. And I'm not going to be using the names of the parents uh, who survived their deceased children. Uh, and I'm going to talk about this a lot more later on. But a big reason is because the parents have been facing... Uh, a lot of harassment from people who believe the conspiracy theories about this event and have had their public information leaked, have had their addresses published online, uh, have been like followed around their homes. Like they've just become very public targets. So I'm going to not pretty much the only name I'll be using is Alex Jones because he is a, a public figure and is, I think, more the center of this episode. But I'm not using the shooter's name out of, you know, not needing to really focus on his actions and I'm going to be leaving the parents name out of it as well because I don't want I don't think they need any extra attention at this time and their their names are also pretty public if you like need to look them up but again the focus is on Alex Jones and his actions um in in this uh in this episode but so that's that was the the event was the Sandy Hook shooting was this very traumatic very tragic event where too many like far too many children were brutally murdered, uh, include, and then their teachers and uh, the shooter's mother. But pretty much immediately from the time of the shoot, the day of the shooting, conspiracy theories sprang up that this was a false flag event, that the children or the families were crisis actors, and that no one had actually died in the event. So if you've never heard of the term false flag, uh, false flag is this idea that the government plans ideas or plans events to make the public feel a specific way about something. And most of what I've seen about Sandy Hook is that the government faked or staged a massacre in an attempt to take away people's guns. So the, the Sandy Hook conspiracy theories really are tied into this like Second Amendment, like people are taking my guns issue. And the term crisis actor usually is used to refer to the people who are taking place in these so-called false flag uh uh, events and people who really promote uh, crisis actor theories will try to prove that the same person is present at multiple events. So there are people who will say uh, that some of the family members or parents from the Sandy Hook shooting uh, can be seen in the background of like Boston bombing footage. Like you'll you'll find them you'll find the same people at multiple. Event. So that's how crisis actor conspiracy theory spread. Now, it was interesting to learn as I was doing the research for this episode that these are actually a distinct type of conspiracy theory. Uh, and they they, they kind of work differently, this idea of like false flag or crisis actors. And, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But they are considered to be like a distinct type of conspiracy theory, uh, like kind of on their own. Now, as these conspiracy theories started to grow, especially as... We moved on from the shooting farther into time. Alex Jones became one of the main promoters of these theories. Now, I'm going to throw an allegedly in here because uh, these issues are still being litigated in several court cases. So I'm going to say Alex Jones was allegedly the main promoter <laughs> of these theories. But there is quite a lot of footage of him promoting these ideas on his show and there are plenty of quotes out there to read from him of him saying like that Sandy Hook never happened uh, and that people were faking it, right? That the parents, especially the parents, were faking it. Now, 
his followers, so the people who are really into his show, Infowars, began to really latch onto this and take action, which resulted in a lot of harassment of the families who had lost children in the shooting. So they would repeat these claims that the families were crisis actors. They would send death threats. They have stalked and videotaped the families. And and some of these families, there's other children in the family. So it's not just the parents, but like the siblings of the deceased children too have been targets of this uh, kind of action. Um, so they've, you know, followed them. There have been incidents where memorials to the murdered children have been stolen or defaced. Uh, one of Alex Jones's listeners actually went to prison for the amount of harassment he engaged in against one of the fathers uh, of, from Sandy Hook. And there are multiple, multiple Facebook groups where people kind of gather to share information about this conspiracy theory. And they, these groups have leaked the addresses and personal information about the surviving parents. So, you know, I, I, I think why I wanted to focus on this conspiracy theory is that there are so many real world consequences for it. Um, like, I'm sure there are people who believe like in the flat earth theory that have maybe done <laughs> weird things, right? Like maybe they've done vandalism, right? Or maybe they've, um, you know, started an argument with someone in line or in public, but the Sandy hook conspiracy theory really comes with it this very intense like I say activism but it's activism in the sense of like it's a group of people organizing to like do things together there's like this this very intense type of activism where the people who believe this theory are going out of their way to either track down the parents disclose their information to other people to try to get other people to harass them or harassing them themselves And even in the face of legal consequences, like someone going to prison for this type of harassment, the harassment continues and has been continuing for 10 years. It has not seemed to have died down and people are still really gung-ho about this conspiracy theory. So again, I think it's like a escalated type of conspiracy theory and the reaction to it is just so unique partly because I think of the incredible trauma uh, related to this conspiracy theory, um, that it it serves as kind of an extreme example, but still something that I think is important for us to talk about because Sandy Hook to me represents kind of the the ex- farthest end of the spectrum to which conspiracy conspiratorial thought can go, right? Like in the first episode about this topic, we talked about how there's a spectrum, right? And <laughs> we all fall on the spectrum somewhere. And some of us maybe believe in things like um if you wear the same jersey for every football game your if you and all your friends wear the same football game football jersey for every game your team will win right that's kind of kind of like a conspiracy theory right it's conspiratorial thinking that i'm gonna that somehow someone is gonna see me wearing this football jersey and then they're gonna play better and they're gonna win right that's the 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 lower end the sandy hook conspiracy theory is the high end, right? The extreme end where not only do I not believe that this horrible thing didn't happen, but that the government actually plotted against the American public to do this thing. And it is my responsibility to actively stop the grieving parents from telling their stories, right? That's, oof, that's way, way on the other side of the end. So that, that's why, again, I know this is a difficult topic to talk about, uh, but I, I do think that it is important. So 
that's kind of what the the harassment was looking like for these parents. It was all over the place, online and in-person harassment. So several families from surviving families from Sandy Hook and an FBI agent who had also been harassed by uh, these these uh, followers had gotten together and have sued Alex Jones for defamation and emotional distress, which leads us up to today. So most of these court cases were filed in like 2018, 2019, pretty much like right before the pandemic. So it's taken a little bit of time for us to finally see the outcome. But all of the lawsuits have focused specifically on how Alex Jones has contributed to the harassment. So, for example, one of the suits brought against him is from one of the fathers who has publicly told his story about the day of the shooting, holding his son who had been shot in the head one final time and seeing the gunshot wound and just realizing, like, my son, my six-year-old child is gone has been brutally murdered and like having this this very intense moment of grief and realization that you know his life will never be the same again that he has lost his son and he has told this story in like several interviews like it's a it's a story that you can you can read about um but alex jones has repeatedly said that this story is fake he has called this father out for lying and has said that it's not possible for him to have had this very tender traumatic moment with his deceased child citing some like random quote from like the coroner and uses this story and his own claims that the father's lying to prove that no one actually died so it's a roundabout way but alex jones has used this particular story from this parent to circumstantially prove that sandy hook could have never have happened because no one would have allowed this father to like be near the body. And it's, it's all conjecture. <laughs> There's technically like six lawsuits against Alex Jones uh, at this time. And he's been found liable in pretty much all of them, mostly because he refuses to cooperate. So in pretty much every lawsuit, he has refused to turn over evidence. He's refused to show up for depositions. And so the judges have ruled against him in this kind of technical ruling. But basically, it's liable by default where he didn't offer up any evidence to prove that he didn't do it so only evidence the judge has is that he did do it so the only decision left to be made in the cases is how much money is Alex Jones going to owe to the families that are suing him and this FBI agent so in 2021 uh he was found liable in the Connecticut case so there were some of them are in Texas because he's based in Texas. And then this one was in the Connecticut court system. And he was just found liable by default uh, because he failed to turn over evidence. And he had been asked multiple times and given multiple opportunities. And he had not turned over the evidence. So on April 1st, which was four days ago at the time of recording this, uh, Alex Jones was ordered to pay a fine of $25,000 a day for each day he failed to arrive for a deposition. So the reason for this deposition is that He's already been found liable. The judge needs his testimony to give to the jury so that the jury can figure out how much he's going to owe to the families who have been impacted by his theory. So they are wanting his deposition testimony so that they can determine how big of a financial package, essentially, that he's going to have to pay out to these families. So you would think that he would be there <laughs> to give his side of the story and try to maybe get out of having to 
pay as much money since he's already been found liable. Now, he has not showed up, which is why, well, at the time of this recording, he had not showed up, which is why he was being uh, ordered to pay a fine. And he keeps saying he has medical issues that don't allow him to be uh, present for the deposition. And then he goes on his show and records his show on the very same day. I haven't killed one kid, but I am the devil. They probably had, no exaggeration, a hundred major newspapers last week, cover stories saying, I'm the devil. I was bad to question Sandy Hook. I wasn't the original guy to question Sandy Hook. So people are not necessarily believing him. Um, and he tried to appeal his fines and the other rulings. He, he, he tried to submit a ruling to just dismiss the case. So that was overturned. So he's appealed that and the, the fines. He's appealed it all the way up and attempted to get it to be heard by the Supreme Court. Uh, but the Supreme Court declined <laughs> to hear his case. So it got kicked back down. So the fines and... The fine stand and he is not allowed to motion to just dismiss the case. So now it's up to him if he's going to show up for this deposition. I believe it's actually scheduled for several days from now. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if he does show up. But essentially the way I see this whole situation is that he threw a tantrum, didn't want to come to court, didn't want to participate in the, the process, uh, and he got found liable. He's responsible for these families' damages and may... You know, I don't know what the outcome would have been if he did show up and turn over evidence and, uh, you know, try to make a case for himself. I don't know if it would have been better for him or if it would have dug him a bigger hole. Um, but we'll never know because he didn't participate. And now, like, it's pretty much a done deal that he's going to have to provide restitution to these families in the, in this court case specifically uh, because no one's going to hear his appeals. Like, they they've already pretty much made it clear that that there won't be an appeal for this and that the because it's a civil case the the judge has a lot more room to make these uh rulings right the in a criminal case there's a lot higher threshold for evidence that has to be submitted by the prosecution but in a civil case it's a lot lot lower and you may know this if you're familiar with the oj simpson case because he was found not guilty in the criminal case but was found liable for nicole brown's death in the civil case right so it's a a lot lower threshold of of evidence so that's what's happening here and that's also how like you can just like not show up but still be found liable because we've hit the threshold of evidence because you didn't submit any (laughs) you didn't participate in the process so that's where we're at now with him um and his sort of the consequences of his his theories so you may be thinking to yourself grace how is this conspiracy theory about a shooting that happened in 2012 still impacting people to this day and to that i would say i have a few ideas (laughs) uh so this brings me into some of the research that i did for this episode so one of the reasons why sandy hook is probably still still in the the conspiracy theory world probably has to do with the unique aspects of this shooting so one was the sheer number of victims so Although there are lots of mass shootings in the U.S., a mass shooting is more than three people being shot at the same time. So mass shootings are happening a lot, but it, it's rarely reaching the, the threshold of like 26, 28 people. So that's one of the unique factors is that this was like just a sheer amount of people. The second thing is that the age of the victims, the, all of the children that were murdered were first graders. 
So very young, like five, six, seven years old, like not as common even in mass school shootings as they tend to be usually high school or college. If you think of like the big, big school shootings that we know of, they, they take place at colleges or, or high schools. So an elementary school shooting, very young children, it, it, that, that's a unique factor that makes it stand out as an event. And the third one is that the, the rarity of, of school shootings. So there's a narrative in U.S. culture, and if you're listening from other countries, you, you may also have sucked up this narrative from our pop culture, but there's a narrative that like school shootings are very common and that they're, they're happening all the time. The reality is, is that school shootings, especially mass school shootings, only account for 0.04% of national gun deaths in the U.S., so most of the gun deaths in the U.S. are either deaths by suicide, so self-inflicted gunshot wounds, or individual homicide, so somebody shooting one other person, uh, one-on-one. So if you think about 0.04%, that's, like, <laughs> that's, that's nothing. It's sad that we have so many gun deaths that there's even these percentages to talk about. But in the, the reality is that these types of mass school shootings don't happen that often. Mass shootings may be happening a lot, but mass school shootings specifically are not happening as much. It's more going to be either suicide or individual homicides. So those unique factors about Sandy Hook kind of keep it in the forefront of our conspiracy theories, right? It's, it's a, it stands out from other events and it makes it harder to rationalize the event because there are so many unique factors about it. And if you've listened to episode two, the first time I talked about conspiratorial thinking, which if you haven't, I highly recommend you go back and listen. Uh, We talked about in that episode that the parts of our brains that make us more susceptible to engaging in conspiracy theories are related to the parts of the brain that reward us for engaging in like gossip or rumors. So as humans, we are social creatures and things like gossip are actually quite necessary for us to build social bonds with each other. So, and, and our brain is more likely to remember stories that are gossip because it, it behooves us to pass them on. And unique gossip stories stick out even more. And I know that equating a conspiracy theory to gossip is like <laughs> apples to oranges, uh, especially a conspiracy theory about something so tragic like the Sandy Hook shooting. But it is this similar type of way that we relate to people and the way that our brains like reward us for passing on a story or learning more about a story to draw us closer to each other. So the unique factors about the Sandy Hook shooting keep it like a high value piece of information to share, right? Because it it's pinging all of these uh, reward systems we have to keep us sharing the story and building social bonds through through passing it along. So that those things all mixed together to make this something that people are gonna people are gonna keep talking about. Like they're they're gonna keep st- sharing the story. Another thing that made this particular shooting so susceptible to conspiracy theories is the involvement of high ranking leaders. So. And, and all of this stuff I'm getting from an article by Schultz that was published in 2013, uh, which you can check out in the sources if you want to read more about what they what they have to say about this event. So involvement in high-ranking leaders. So from the like hours after the shooting, the highest-ranking official in the town of Sandy Hook was like on the scene making statements to the media. 
Shortly after that, the governor of Connecticut arrived at Sandy Hook to make statements, be in front of the media. And then like a day or two later, President Obama arrived at the site to make statements. And Obama actually ended up making several statements about the Sandy Hook shooting, even after the like days following the events had moved on. Um, and you may remember him like crying when he gave a speech about Sandy Hook, which people really... It was quite a polarizing event, uh, if you remember that time. Like, some people really liked it because they thought that it showed that he was human and he really did, he really was hurt by this event. And some people saw it as like fake, he's a crisis actor, uh, or it's, you know, it's meant to sell us on, on this story. So once these like high level government officials, I mean, it goes all the way up to the president, right? If the president is arriving on the scene, this makes it so much easier to work into the narrative of this like false flag, right? Like there are, there have been mass shootings at schools that have happened before 2012. There are mass shootings that happened at schools after 2012. And not everyone, every single event had the president show up to it, right? Now, it's often like presidents will comment, right? Like Bill Clinton had a lot to say about Columbine, but he didn't like show up in the same way. And we also didn't see him in the same way because of media, the way that the, the media was working at the time. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later too. Um, but so all these like all these government officials getting involved just really make it easier for people to tie that web together of like, well, see, the government must be involved. They're sending all of their, you know, big kahunas out there to keep an eye on the situation. Now, there's this model of how uh, psychological distress around a tragedy spreads to the population, and it's called the population exposure model. Um, and this was outlined in the article by Wood, which also was published in 2013, if you want to take a look at it. Um, so this this population exposure model, which Wood outlines in, in their article, talks about how the farther out we get from the event, like closeness, not, not just physical closeness, but like how related we are to the victims of the event, the farther we get out from the events, the kind of more diffuse the psychological distress is, but it still does impact everyone. So one of the ways that the population exposure model works is it kind of measures things like PTSD symptoms or just general psychological distress in the people who have been exposed to this event. So in something like Sandy Hook, you have a lot of different ranks. So you first have the first tier is the the next closest living relatives of the people who have died. So in this case, it would be the parents and siblings of the children who had been murdered. That's kind of the first tier. Uh, also, the children who had been like on the school grounds with their friends who had been killed. So like directly being a part of the violence. That's the first tier. Then it moves out to like the n next level family members. So like extended family members of the children who had been killed and people who were like at the school, but maybe not directly involved in the shooting so they maybe didn't see the shooter or witness anyone being shot but they were on school grounds while this was happening that's second tier then you start to move into the third tier which includes people like the first responders uh especially if they responded afterwards and didn't see anything uh happening the media who's there like reporting the story hearing the story told over and over again and like the the community of sandy hook so that that now we're in the third tier the fourth tier 
then widens up even more. And this could be like everybody in Connecticut as this event did take place in their state. And then the bottom tier is everyone in the nation who is like seeing this event on the news. So those are those are the tiers. And the closer you are, the more likely you are to experience something like PTSD symptoms, uh, increased psychological distress, increased mental health uh, impacts, right? You're, you're closer. As you trickle out, the psychological distress can still be spread, but it's going to be less and less and less. So if you live in like Idaho, right, at, during the time of the Sandy Hook shooting, you're in that bottom, bottom tier. So you may see it on the news, you're hearing about it from other people, but you're probably not personally connected to anyone who was involved in the situation, you're probably less likely to be involved or connected to anyone who's like a first responder. Uh, and you're not going to be physically on the site where the event happened. You're like physically distant as well as emotionally distant from it as well. And I'm one of those people, right? I'm, I was in tier six. I was living in California at the time. Uh, did, you know, don't know anyone who is connected to the shooting or the event. Don't know any of the first responders. I saw things on the news. Uh, but that was about it, right? I'm pretty, pretty far removed from this. So those of us in tier six, <laughs> we are still susceptible to one, psychological distress, and two, spreading conspiracy theories. So some people theorize that conspiracy theories could arise in response to psychological distress to sort of soothe ourselves, right? That if we are maybe feeling distressed because we feel out of control, we feel like the world is just such a bad place. We can't make sense of an event that happened. It could be easy to believe in a conspiracy theory because it either gives us back control over the event or at least gives us an explanation for why something like this would happen. And so if you are far enough removed from the event in that you aren't seeing the evidence up close, right? Because even the people who lived in like the town could go to the school and see what was happening or they could go to the vigils and see the families grieving. Those of us over on the West Coast, right, (laughs) or anywhere else in the country, like we don't have that access to that kind of information. All we're seeing is what is on the news or on the internet. And that makes it really, really hard for us to feel connected to the event without getting caught up in the sheer amount of information. So, Tier six is interesting. These like five or six, these lower tiers is interesting because we're still able to feel the psychological distress. We may even still experience symptoms of PTSD. It's not, it's got to be full blown PTSD, but it could be like maybe some negative emotion symptoms, some difficulty sleeping, like intrusive thoughts. We could have a little bit of those things, but not full criteria. Uh, But we're also so far removed from it that we could it makes it easier to buy into some of these theories, right? Like if you're on the site, it's going to be pretty hard to buy into the theory that this is a false flag, right? Because you're kind of seeing the evidence with your own eyes. So this population exposure model is like, is unique to modern times because you used to not have this same type of exposure to a a local tragedy, right? Like if we're thinking about like the 1800s and you live in New York and something happens in Florida you're not going to know about it. I mean, you may, it might make the paper, but you're not going to know about it with the same degree as we do nowadays. And so this leads me into my point about the changes in technology um, and how that relates to 
the spreading of conspiracy theories. This also, I believe, I pulled from Schultz as well. It was a really good article. I really recommend it if you're interested in reading the whole thing. So uh, the, the article laid out four of our biggest school shootings and how they relate to changes in technology. So the first one is in 1966. It's the Texas Tower sniper who was, uh, I believe it was a college campus a man was up in a in a tower using a sniper rifle to kill people indiscriminately from the campus. So in 1966, this story would have been put on some network TV and the radio. So that would have been your access to it. And network TV, like you would have had one hour for the news after dinner. <laughs> and that would have been like the only time the story was talked about. And then like maybe in the news hour on the radio. So it was the information was out there. Everyone probably who had a TV or radio would have had access to it, but it probably would have only been the story would have only been told like once a night until the the news cycle had moved on, which wouldn't have been as fast in the 1960s. Um, but it wouldn't have been the only story that was being talked about because there was only so much time that news could be done in in the day on these programs so that's the first like kind of transition so the the 1966 shooting happens kind of on this uh wave of network tv and the radio in 1999 we have columbine which is a school shooting that took place in colorado in a high school and columbine happened right at the beginning of kind of like the 24-hour news cycle and cable news so now we don't just have your network you're like three channels with their new news hour at night. You have channels like CNN who are always doing news 24-7 and have the ability to not only tell you the story one time, like a, a traditional news show, but to cover it in multiple shows throughout the day with multiple angles, some being opinion, some being news, all apparently supposed to be entertainment. Um, but the, the Columbine is happening at this time where we're really first starting to encounter this like 24 hour news cycle issue where you're going to get, you're going to hear the story over and over again. Then in 2007, we have the Virginia Tech shooting, which was, uh, another college campus in Virginia. Um, and this happened kind of at the crux of social media and like smartphones, right? So, uh, social media was really not quite where it is now, but it was just kicking off enough that people could share this story, could share the news story with their social networks on platforms like Facebook. And so we not only have the 24-hour news cycle reporting on the Virginia Tech shooting, but also people starting to share information within their own social networks. And then in 2012, which was only five years later, social media had become a huge presence which made the story even like spread even farther than it had with the other three um, like major shootings. And although I'm sure you could find meaty conspiracy theories about all three of those shootings, I think Columbine has quite a few conspiracy theories, not necessarily conspiracy theories, but just like interesting narratives <laughs> um, about the shooting. Sandy Hook has like full blown conspiracy theories calling the event like fake, saying it's not real, saying it never happened. And we don't have that as much with the other shootings. And I believe, and I think this article also makes the case for, is that it's because of the the huge presence of social, social media when this happened. And the article talks about a many-to-many -many conversation versus a one-to-many. 
So a one to many would be like when you watch the news, right? Or even when you read an article. So if you were to read an article in the New York Times, there's one author, one journalist giving information to many people, all the people who read that article. So you have one source of information and then everyone can, you know, interpret it as they will read for bias or critically or not (laughs) or skim. Uh, But everyone's doing that privately in a many to many conversation many authors or sources are sharing their information and then getting feedback from from and and spreading that to many people at the same time and that's what social media is right like everybody and their grandma could post on facebook or twitter after the shooting and like have their take use their hashtags spread whatever articles they wanted to so even if you know nobody subscribes to the washington times which is let me be clear a fake newspaper (laughs) very bad newspapers not the washington post the washington times like maybe in the past no one would have really subscribed to it but online people all they need is people sharing it to their friends to get the circulation to be wider and wider than it would have ever been with their marketing budget so now all of a sudden you have not only many people sharing their own ideas sharing their opinions about this event you're now sharing lots and lots of different sources whether it's just raw footage from the security cameras news footage, like all of this information is being shared. And the sheer amount of information that's shed on social media leads to what we could very nicely call collaborative problem solving and collaborative interpretation. So we're all together processing this information and seeing how each other reacts almost in real time. So you're able to be able to maybe read someone's comment, be like, oh, I never thought about it like that. Let me use that perspective maybe even gain a fact, right? Someone says like, well, actually I heard this, like you're gaining different information, different perspectives from this many to many uh, model versus just one person's perspective and one person's source of information. So not only do we have everybody's opinion (laughs) and, and we're getting everybody's sources of information, right? Like all this footage, put those things together and now we can find inconsistencies, right? So with this sheer amount of information, it's bound to happen. So think about like if you've ever watched those um, (laughs) like car recording videos, right? Where people have like their dash cam and they record like people cutting them off or like getting into accidents or stuff. So like imagine you're watching the footage from someone's dash cam of someone cutting them off and it looks pretty clear cut, right? It looks like, oh, this guy cut him off. End of story, like the driver is in the right. Now, imagine that you then have footage from someone who was like walking down the street and was filming traffic and caught this cutoff. And you see that, well, actually, Mr. Dashcam first flipped off the other car. And so this was like retaliation, right? So maybe it doesn't excuse the cutting off, but now we have more context, right? And we have a different angle, different footage, new information led to inconsistencies, right? The Dashcam guy said, I just got cut off out of nowhere. I'm so mad. Well, there's an inconsistency in that story because there it wasn't out of nowhere. There was uh, like a preceding event. Now, imagine you multiply that by like 10,000 hours of footage <laughs> from <laughs> multiple different sources. That's what the internet is like about things like Sandy Hook. You're filled with like these, whether it's like raw security camera footage to newsreels to personal videos people have taken who they post to their own social media, people start to aggregate all this information and they start to notice things that are that seem to be inconsistent, right? Maybe if you're, 
you think you, you see a video that was on the news that they said was filmed at noon and someone posts a video to their Twitter that they say was filmed at noon and I don't know it looks like a kid from one angle jumped out of line versus from the other angle it looked like he didn't jump out of line right because that that's one of the evidences that they use for this is that the children were like walking in a line out of the school it, the whole thing is a giant hoax the whole thing was fake Yes, because I remember in, even that day, I'll go back from memory, then saying, but then some of it looks like it's real, but then what do you do when they've got the kids going in circles in and out of the building with their hands up? I've watched the footage and it looks like a drill. Uh, and that they were allegedly like circling the school, but it's like, that's, <laughs> if you've ever been an elementary school child, like it's like part of the protocol, like they want you to be in line and like be quiet because something like really scary is happening and these children are really traumatized. So they probably are being very docile and standing in line because they're terrified. But that's used as evidence of like, oh, they're actors. Cause like, why would kids stand in line like that? Right. So that, that's one of those things where if you get enough footage of like different angles of the kids in line, you can make it look like whatever you want. Right. You could make it look like they are standing in line really still. You could make it look like they're not you can do whatever you want. You can interpret it however you want because it's just too much information. So this sheer, sheer volume of information plus this like collaborative problem solving, again, nice way of calling it, uh, this collaborative problem solving and interpretation method, like they all kind of wind up together. So now people are applying this collaborative approach to these like very minor inconsistencies in a sheer amount of data. And it's hard to make these like cohesive, right? So it be just kind of becomes like one person says, pushes back on this thing versus uh, one person believes this other little thing right there. There, It's not a cohesive thing. It's just like all these little things that we just kind of roll into one theory and say, this is it. This is the conspiracy theory. Um, we also have changed the way that conspiratorial thinking works by on the internet. And so like I was saying, right, these little piecemeal details are how we do it now right? We like gather all this information and we find these little tiny inconsistencies and we use these piecemeal like kind of bottom up deductive reasoning way to make a theory versus in pre-internet times, conspiracy theories were more cohesive alternative narratives to the mainstream. So if you were going to encounter conspiracy theory in the wild in like the 60s or 70s, it was going to be like a fully formed narrative with like points in which it refutes the mainstream narrative so i don't know i wasn't alive <laughs> back then but like let's just say for example you know if people started to have doubts about like the vietnam war and you could call that a conspiracy theory because people believed like we're there for the wrong reasons or were like committing war crimes and that is an uh, an alternative to the mainstream narrative which is like we're helping the vietnamese people so you could call that a conspiracy theory, but that like idea would have been built on this whole scale cohesive narrative of like, what is the mission of the U.S. in Vietnam and what are we doing to achieve that mission? And the mainstream narrative was we're there to help people fight communism because that's our job, apparently. And we are willing to we're willing to do everything up to the line, right? Like we won't do war crimes. But the reality or the information that people were getting was we're in Vietnam seemingly for <laughs> little to no reason or just for this like ego boost of we can stop communism and we're willing to do a lot of war crimes and we killed a lot of civilians and we bombed Cambodia for some reason, right? <laughs> that has nothing to do with Vietnam. Uh, so 
that is the like alternative cohesive narrative that would be labeled a conspiracy theory, but like there's some truth to it, right? And so that is different than the way that conspiracy theories are today because in pre-internet times, you had to have the whole narrative make sense for you to be able to dis- disseminate it because you couldn't just send people texts to be like, hey, I found this thing. Oh, I found this other thing. I found this other thing. Like you would have to have like your narrative package to be able to spread it to other people. And in conjunction, as we spend more time on the internet, we become more and more siloed in our bubbles, right? You've you've heard of this. We're in our little echo chambers. Our algorithms are suited to like what we like, to what we already think. So we get fed our same values over and over again. And there's no way to be constructive. <laughs> there's no way to cr- criticize these theories because they're only getting pushed out to people who already believe what we believe. And if people push back, it's really easy to kick them out of your echo chamber, right? You block them on Twitter. You block them on Facebook. You unfriend them. They're no longer allowed to comment on your material. So you don't have to kind of take in what they have to say. So in short, the internet (laughs) is one of the reasons why conspiracy theories are such a problem right now. One, it's this many-to-many problem-solving style where it's really collaborative. We can uh, gain a lot of other perspectives, even if they're wrong. <laughs> we can gain a lot of other perspectives from a lot of other people really quickly. We have a, just access to a sheer amount of data, even like raw data that no one has cleaned up or explained to us. We have access to it. Uh, we have these echo chambers where nobody is kind of pushing back and we can use these like piecemeal criticisms of tiny details. We don't have to have whole narratives in order to disseminate our theory. So all four factors come together to make the internet one of the reasons why conspiracy theories have changed and why they look a lot more like the Sandy Hook theory than conspiracy theories from the past. And because Sandy Hook happened right at this shift where social media was like a boom, uh, it, it was the most susceptible to this effect, more so than the other mass shooting events. So I had mentioned before that, um, these like false flag crisis actor theories are are unique are a distinct type of conspiracy theory and they are also unique to the internet age one of the things that makes crisis actor false flag theories easier or more i guess geared toward the internet is that they are meant to be cross referenceable <laughs> so that's a mouthful so you are meant to cross reference multiple false flag crisis actor theories with each other So like I was mentioning before, right, there are people who will say, oh, if you look up pictures of or if you look up footage from Sandy Hook, the shooting, you can see people in the footage who look exactly like people who are in the Boston bombing footage or that are in like the 9-11 footage. So you're like looking at all this footage and you're seeing this quote unquote same people in the background. The thing is, is that a lot of this footage is really grainy, (laughs) like security camera footage especially or like even like personal cell phone video is not really great either in quality of like the actual video or like shaky cam status right like have you ever tried to watch a video someone filmed themselves and then just posted to social media without editing it like it looks bad it's like hard to hard to watch so of course you're gonna see like just some brown-haired guy and be like oh he looks the same as the brown-haired guy in the boston bombing video and the reality is, is that people look the same when you put them on the camera. <laughs> we all kind of blend together, especially if it's blurry and shaky. Like, yes, people are going to look like they're they're at both events, 
But again, this access to footage on the internet fuels this belief that we can cross-reference these events and see the same people at different events. Uh, crisis act, uh, actor hoaxes or staged conspiracy theories also give people a lot more sense of control over the theory. So in the internet age, people feel out of control. The world feels a lot bigger, even though it feels a lot smaller at the same time. This feeling of control is needed more. And so what gives you the most sense of control over a tragedy like Sandy Hook? Well, the government was in control of it, right? (laughs) The government did this. No one actually died. Everybody is fine. And these people got paid a hefty chunk of change to do their crisis acting on, on the TV. So now you don't have to believe that, first of all, someone could just seemingly snap one day and go on a rampage that somebody could kill multiple small children um, and that there would be no way for anyone to stop this, right? Because again, I think a unique, I didn't mention this before, but I think a unique piece of Sandy Hook is that the shooter killed himself, right? He wasn't stopped by law enforcement in the way that other shooters have. Like he kind of got to decide when the end of the shooting was himself. Like, he, and, and there were no consequences for him, right? He just dies. Um, so a lot of those things are very, very out of control. And so believing that this was a false flag means that every step of the way, somebody knew what was happening and was kind of directing the cues, directing the actors where to go, what to do, who should say what when, who should cry when. All of that becomes like very, very controlled in one of these hoaxes. And so people feel more in control of their world when they can believe that something like this doesn't just happen out of the blue or doesn't just happen for no reason and that there's like somebody behind all of this. And especially even on the internet where you are hearing all of this stuff, you're not close to the event, but you're uh, reading all this information, kind of being inundated with it, you can then believe, well, someone had control over it. So I've got two more main points to talk about in regards to conspiracy theories that I want to go over. So the first comes from this article by uh, Drazkowicz, published uh, actually just this year. And her research is on conspiracy theories, particularly uh, like vaccine hesitancy in Ireland and parents who are in Ireland. Uh, so her, her work is really interesting if you want to check out more of it. But she wrote this piece about essentially having compassion for people who believe in conspiracy theories and how you can better understand the conspiracies that people hold on to. So her main point is that conspiracy theories are not about information. They are about values. So although they come with information, right? they come with lots of information, the people who hold a conspiracy theory are not holding it because they've added up all the facts and this just has to be what happens. They're holding on to the conspiracy theory because of an underlying value. And so in her work with vaccine hesitancy, it's typically a value around like fear for their child or fear against the government. Uh, And she actually makes a really good case that in different areas, the underlying values change. So for example, uh, the, let's say the specific theory about vaccine hesitancy is that the government hides the truth about the disease. So like for autism, right? So a lot of people think that certain vaccines will give your child autism. So there's this fear that like the government is hiding the truth about 
the reality of autism and its link to vaccines. However, the reason why people have those fears is different in different countries. So she says in the U.S., the, those, those fears are based on this attack on what she calls self-built prosperity. So it's, you know, that's the kind of the American stereotype, right, of like my freedoms, that the, these fears that the government is lying to us or hiding things from us are a direct affront to our idea that we can kind of pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and make something for ourselves in this world. And we can't do that if the government is hiding these things from us. Now, in Poland, the fears that the government is hiding the truth about the disease is a con- reflects a concern that the state is hiding its failures so that the Polish people or people in Poland are coming at holding these conspiracy theories because they're coming from a place of believing that the state has failed. The government has failed in some way and knows there's this link between vaccines and autism and doesn't want to admit that they've like, I don't want to say infected because that's not how autism works, but you know, like made children sick and they, that they don't want to admit that this failure has happened. So that's like a different way of feeling about it than the American audience. And then the third group she looked at was the uh, in Ireland and in Ireland these fears are tied to these uh what she calls post-colonial memories of British rule and suspicion of foreign influence so in Ireland the focus is really on how this connects into history of their experience being under colonial rule and having people come in and kind of impose things onto them uh, onto their culture and onto their kind of the way their society is built. So although this, the fear, quote unquote, is the same for all three countries, the reasons why the fear is scary are different. And so with Sandy Hook, uh, I had to wonder, like, what are the values associated with that conspiracy? And I think there's a few. So one, I think for some people, especially because it's American, so it's going to be closer to the reasons that that Dreiskowitz outlines in her article, like this kind of prosperity, like government taking away your rights. Uh, so I think that there, for some, it's a fear that the government would take away your guns, right? Take away your Second Amendment rights. Because that's what always happens after these shootings, right? Immediately the conversation becomes, the, they're going to take your guns. And there isn't kind of time for any other conversations because it's just about if some other guy gets to have guns or not, not this one guy who had a gun and did a really bad thing with it. Um, so th- I think that's for some people, it's that, right? That the government is going to kind of come in, use this as an excuse to take away your rights because that's what the government does. And there's this fear that then I won't be able to pull myself up by my bootstraps if the government is always coming in and doing things for me. And I think for others, there's a fear that you, you can't protect your children from like the horror of the world, right? That like, if, someone could brutally murder 26 year olds then and 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 to do it without anyone know, knowing that this was about to happen then your world is not safe your children are not safe and i think especially the vitriol directed at the parents who have survived shows us that it's a fear of like the the parent is to blame right that like if i were to be in their in their shoes it would be my fault i i'm a bad parent that i can't protect my child so it's easier to believe that none of those children are dead and it's a government um, crisis or a staged hoax because then it means that I don't have to reconcile with the fact that maybe I can't protect my child from every horrible thing that happens in the world, right? And I think 
although I, I, I think I identify with people more on this level of like, it's such a horrible thing. I think for both camps, like both of those values that kind of underline this conspiracy theory, I, I get that fear, right? I think that's a point I can definitely have compassion for people is that there, whether it's fear that you can't protect your child from terror in the world or the fear that someone from the government is going to come and ruin what you feel is your way of life or maybe your like naturalized rights. Uh, both of those things are scary, even if I don't identify with both of them, right? Like those, those things are really scary and I can have compassion for someone who believes that this was a false flag in order to keep those fears at bay. I don't have compassion for the people who send death threats to grieving parents or harass them or videotape them uh, as a way to kind of rationalize your fears about the world, right? And I think that's where we have to take kind of a hard line as a society is that conspiracy theories can be fun. They can be silly. People are very creative. <laughs> it's, you know, we like to see this collaborative problem solving and interpretation. But when it crosses over from a theory to how influencing how you behave, that is a line we have to draw. And if you're going to be harassing people who have just gone through the worst tragedy that they will ever experience in their lives, and you're invalidating their experiences, then you've gone too far. And it's no longer fun and games when people's addresses are being leaked online and they're having to move houses because they're being harassed so much and sent death threats. Like, can you imagine sending death threats to someone who just lost a child? Like, that's, to me, that's mind-blowing. And so this is the dialectical tension, right, of having compassion for people who are so deeply terrified that something is going to happen to them or their family or their children. And drawing a hard line of saying, like, it is unacceptable to then take that, that fear out on people who have gone through the worst tragedy they'll ever live through in their lives, losing their child. And I think the thing that makes me the most heated up is then trying to think about what is the value that Alex Jones has to hold on to these conspiracy theories. And again, this is going to be my opinion. <laughs> this is opinion-based. Uh, I think that Jones's values are to keep his business afloat, which leads me to my next point, about the connection between these types of theories and capitalism. So Alex Jones stands to profit by not going back on his theories about Sandy Hook, by continuing to push these ideas that these parents are lying, that these children never died. Jones is building an empire of a very profitable empire. So in a New York Times article that kind of went through his business dealings, this was from 2018, so it's a little bit old. In 2018, Alex Jones had a billion views on his YouTube channel. So it's probably over that now. And those are those views can translate into money. And he had sold at least seven to twelve million dollars in supplements alone, which he sells alongside his other merchandise. So this his show has become a money making device for selling supplements to his followers. So by using the Sandy Hook theory to get people to watch his show, he's then making millions of dollars off of you in, in a year. That's just one year. Now, Jones has built most of his entire career off of conspiracy theories, starting back to community college, where he had a public access show where he began to use these uh, false flag theories, where he would publicly state that the Oklahoma City bombing was a government inside job, that the the bombing that killed over 100 people in a federal government building that had a daycare and a social security office, he insisted that that was a government inside job. I don't know what the, 
the incentive for that would be for the government to blow up their own building, but he insisted on on that as a theory. In 1999, Alex Jones founds InfoWars, and it was just in time for him to have a, a foundation to be able to jump into 9-11 theories being an inside job. So Jones has actually been kind of at the forefront of these crisis actor uh, theories, even though they're they're more internet age. But, you know, InfoWars has always been like an internet show, like an internet company, right? So he really, I think, represents this this internet age of conspiracy theories even though he grew up on kind of the old school conspiracy theory like you gotta you gotta find little pamphlets to read you know you can't just go you can't just find the wikipedia page for these things right you gotta seek out the information and he came from that age he grew up in that and then he's coming to the internet age to be able to more widely spread these ideas now since his show had started in 1999 alex jones wasn't necessarily like the leader of any <laughs> corner of the internet like he was he wasn't mainstream but that changed in 2016 now this would have been four years after sandy hook so four years of this guy pushing these theories donald trump goes on to alex jones's show in 2016 and brings credibility and attention to Infowars. so from 2016 alex jones's show has like exponentially increased in the amount of people that listen to it he's also now he was then making more money off of this like in, uh, audience bump he got. And when you have the president of the United States or the almost president of the United States lending credibility to this, you now have a much bigger platform in which to spread this information, which leads to more people harassing these families. So I don't it, it's no surprise to me that it wasn't it was only two years later that the family started to put forth these lawsuits. Kind of post this transformation of Jones's platform into a much more, not it's not mainstream, but just a a platform that had a lot more of attention on it, and so he's like pushing, pushing, pushing these conspiracy theories. But the genius of what Alex Jones does, the evil genius, is that he has always paired these like outlandish theories about the frogs are turning us gay and there are demons in the government. He has always paired them with a very legitimate criticisms of illegal government programs like COINTELPRO and MKUltra. So these, like COINTELPRO and MKUltra, which could each be an episode, honestly. <laughs> There's so much there. Each of these government programs happened and included the government doing like illegal surveillance and like experimenting on people with hallucinogens and, and are, are real things that are documented and we like know that these things happen and are bad for the government to be doing to people, right? Like COINTELPRO, MKUltra, bad all around. Didn't help the American people. But we're still things that the government did to us. And so pairing that with his like crackpot theories about other things, especially like Sandy Hook, just gives it more and more support and makes it more difficult for his audience to decide what's fake and what's not and him also building his career on this false flag idea again lends credence to sandy hook because this is the guy who calls out false flag operations if he's calling sandy hook a false flag then it must be right he's like he's built his his theories on this he also has built his theories on this idea of like gut feelings like alex jones isn't sitting down with like a a a work cited page <laughs> like he doesn't have a sources page where he's going to show you like peer-reviewed information now he does have like massive stacks of papers on his desk to make it look like he does that 
But a lot of what he says, if you listen to his words, are that he just feels that this must be true. It's a lot of like, this has to be true. This doesn't feel right. Things don't fit together. And that this is the crux of the Sandy Hook conspiracy theories that, that he has pushed is like, this doesn't seem right to me, so it must not be right. And this is just fuels this American anti-intellectualism or distrust of institutional expertise, right? And we talked about this in the first conspiratorial thinking episode, that when there's not transparency in, in government institutions or even just like public institutions in a country, particularly in America, when there's not transparency and when people don't understand what's going on, they start to distrust them. And this leads to anti-intellectualism, right? Where anyone who's supposed to be an academic expert or an expert from experience, like someone like Dr. Fauci or people who are lawyers, <laughs> uh, they become the enemy. They become distrustful because they are part of this uh, opaque institution that we can't trust. And and because they are into, seen to be intellectuals, then we also have to be anti-intellectual because we distrust them and the institutions they work for. So Jones is wrapping all this stuff up all together, which just makes the pill of the Sandy Hook conspiracy theory go down easier for his followers. And all of that, all of that gut feeling, the anti-intellectualism, the pairing it with real government programs that deserve to be criticized, all of that stuff that he's doing, he's doing it at the same time that he's selling you survival kits and testosterone supplements. He's selling you something the entire time. And even if he's just selling you like to support his program, like he is selling you things at the same time. There is no indication that this is someone who is giving you information for the sake of information that just wants you to have this information so that you can do with it what you should do. All of it is about selling, selling, selling. And I say that this this is the connection to capitalism in that there doesn't seem to be an end, right? The desire is for exponential growth. And this is not unique to Alex Jones. I think this is happening for all media companies. I think this is happening for a lot of companies or corporations is that there's never an end. There's never a point where we'll say we're productive enough. We're profitable enough. It will always, always, always be exponential growth. And so these companies that sell you information well, they sell your information. <laughs> they sell you things alongside their information. It's never going to be enough for them to say, like, we got 30 people to click on this article. We got 30, well, 30 is not enough. <laughs> you know, we got 30 million people to click on this article. We got 30,000 shares. We got this many retweets, blah, 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 blah. You know, like, bajillions and bajillions of people have shared this article or read it. It will never be enough. It will always have to push higher and higher. Capitalism requires that people keep being profitable, more profitable than they were before. You may hear this a lot thrown around the word innovation, right? We got to innovate, 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 always be doing better. And there's going to be a point where it's not possible for us to do better, for us to be more profitable or more productive. There is a ceiling to it. It just has to be, right? Because people are, people only have so much resources. And so people like Alex Jones are going to keep pushing conspiracy theories farther and farther because it's going to get more clicks because you need more clicks than you got the last time. You need to target more Sandy Hook parents than you did the last time because it gets more attention. It gets more people into your Facebook group. And so that's why I, like, I think it's important to focus on this stuff and that this stuff is dangerous. And if this lawsuit stuff hadn't happened and this his like behavior hadn't been called into light in this way, 
I don't think that there would have been any consequences because he's had to now make some public statements where he says he thinks that the tragedy was real. He's waffled on it. He's gone back and forth. But I do want to say that he has put out statements that say he at least I don't it's waffly right but he's at least said that it could have happened which is so much different than what he said in the past that it definitely did not happen and so if this lawsuit hadn't happened if there hadn't been this line drawn of like this is unacceptable behavior he would have kept pushing and pushing and pushing this narrative to become more profitable to continue to be more productive and things would have never stopped him and who knows what the the consequences would have been right because if 10 years later these parents are still getting harassed and still getting stalked and having their addresses doxxed. One article I was reading said that they posted one of the dad's addresses on their LinkedIn page. Like, that's not what LinkedIn is for. It's not for doxing people. It's for adding your coworkers so that you know where they go when they leave you. <laughs> but really, like, when would this have, where would this have stopped if, if the person in charge of pushing this to make a profit hadn't been called to task? And so I know that this last little bit here, I've just kind of been yelling into my microphone, but I, I, I feel very passionately about this. And I think that I think that I see conspiratorial thinking as a tipping point for the, this is so dramatic, but for like the outcome of civilization that like, if we can't figure out how to deal with conspiracy theories and how to prevent them from tipping over into behavior, right? Like I mentioned before, we got to figure out how to draw this line at you can believe something, but if you're taking action against other people in a way that is harmful, then we got to figure this out and draw a line in the sand there. And I think that it could be one of the things that just gets us into trouble as civilization, as society, and can lead to really, really harmful things. And in the future, it won't just be the 20 sets of families that were affected by Sandy Hook. And and that's too many people. Like, I'm going to say that unequivocally, 20 families is too many people. But it's going to get to a point where it's not just 20 families, where it's a lot of people, right? And that becomes dangerous. When conspiracy theories then start to target huge groups, like people who identify as Jewish or people who identify as Black or people who identify as transgender, right? We're seeing these things start to happen and have happened in the past, and they are life-ending for people in the groups that they are that are targeted. So, not to make this episode too heavy, which it was going to already be heavy because I was talking about a massacre, uh, but not to make it too heavy. But I just, I just want to communicate the stuff that I think is really important, and I think that we need to keep our attention on this story and see what happens to Alex Jones because it's going to set a precedent for how we as a society deal with people who take conspiracy theories too far. And if you're listening to this and for some reason also listen to Alex Jones, I commend you on being very open-minded, but I would also encourage you to not buy anything from him ever again. That if we break the connection between profit and conspiracy theory, then maybe it won't spread as far. And that could be one of the ways that we start to do that is not giving this man money for, you know, continuing to, to spread conspiracy theories that are damaging to people. And if you have someone in your life who believes in conspiracy theories, who maybe you notice is starting to tip over into some of this problematic behavior, you know, I encourage you to ask for help to see if they can talk to somebody. There are a ton of resources on my website if you if you need some place to start. But, you know, get support for yourself. 
first and then see if you can get somebody to help your your loved one because we don't want to burn ourselves out when taking care of others but we also don't want our loved ones to be pushed over the edge in the way that some of these people have been pushed over the edge by Alex Jones and have done and have done things and have acted against the families that survived Sam, Sandy Hook in a way that they probably would never have done if this if this theory hadn't been pushed onto them in the same way. So all of this <laughs> rambling and carrying on to say that this is a difficult topic. I'll probably continue to revisit it through, throughout the the episodes. Um, but as we continue to revisit it and continue to evolve, we can start to piece together all of these things that make conspiracy theories like stick in our brains and how to deal with the people in our lives who are maybe struggling with them. Um, but yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to the whole episode. Thank you again to everyone who leaves a review or rates the show. It means a lot to me. It really pushes us up in the charts so that more people can see and he will not see, but can hear <laughs> the episodes. Um, so yeah, thank you for sticking with me through the whole episode and I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.